Good morning, Northbrook. Good to see you here. Hebrews 11 is where we are. We're going to read verses 29 to 39. That'll be through the end of the chapter of Hebrews. Hebrews 11, 29 to 39. And you'll, if you, if you notice this, I'll just say it so that hopefully you will notice it. We're going to move here now at the end of Hebrews from stories about individuals more to stories about events. And the, as the writer writes, he wants us to see faith displayed, belief displayed in the lives of people, but he's going to connect everything to specific events that took place. So for us, especially at the end of this chapter, after he says, and what more could I say? And he just starts listing names. For us, some of those names are just names. But for Jewish people in particular at that time, these names would have been connected to specific events and big moments in the history of Israel. So just kind of keep that in mind. We're going to focus on verse 29 this morning, but uh, we'll read this entire section here, verse 29 to the end of the chapter. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would not Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. That's the first part that all sounds really good. But by faith, we could say right here, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. As I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, our, fo- our focus from t- for today draws from a story that is very familiar to us, and that is the parting of the Red Sea. Um, this is one of those stories, again, that whether a person has grown up in the church or didn't grow up in the church, they're familiar with the story to some degree or another. Um, for some, their only knowledge of the parting of the Red Sea 
is from the movie I mentioned last week, The Exodus, which while it was a special effects triumph for its time, was quite lacking in biblical authority and accuracy. But uh, especially for those who have grown up in the church, parting the Red Sea is a very familiar story. And, and all you have to do is saying the parting of the Red Sea or the Red Sea being parted and images come to your mind. You just start visualizing certain things that you saw in Sunday school materials and, and what that would have looked like. Um, I, saw, I saw somebody this last week posted on Facebook a Red Sea cake, birthday cake. Did anybody else see that? It was a Red Sea birthday cake, and they had cut in, I didn't show it to Terry, I usually would, but they had cut in to the, to the cake with a section, and then it was blue frosting coming out of that cutout part, and then on the bottom, you know, was, was this, like, sandy stuff, and then there were fish stuck in the blue frosting, and uh, some of the fish were actually half hanging out of the water. But uh, you have that image in your mind, and that's a pretty common image to a lot of people, uh, and that's why it showed up on a birthday cake like that. And while it's a familiar story and an important story, it's, it's a crucial story in the exodus of the people of God from Egypt to the Promised Land. The writer of Hebrews decides to reduce it to one sentence here in Hebrews 11. This important massive story that comes up again and again in the Old Testament is brought down to one sentence by faith. The people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. That's it. And you fill in the details. I don't want to just leave it at that. I actually intended to go verse 29 to 31 this morning, and I decided that it would be good for us to spend a little more time on this story and just look at one of the most significant moments in Jewish history when God rescued his people and destroyed their enemies. We were talking in the back this morning about a a television series that's out there called The Chosen, and I have not seen it, and um, I I actually haven't even thought about it much, but uh, so I really don't have a huge opinion on it. But one thing that I've found with dramatizations of Scripture is that sometimes things get added in that if people aren't constantly checking the storyline with what the Bible says, they actually begin to believe the Bible teaches certain things that it doesn't actually teach because it was dramatized. And as somebody else mentioned, in the case of this, they have questions about what's been left out of it that is in the Bible story. Um, That's not in any way to criticize the series. If you've seen it and God's using it in your life, that's awesome. But uh, over the years, I found that dramatizations and Sunday school teachers are really good at communicating to us things that are not actually part of the story and also leaving things out that are important to the story. So because this is a famous story again and because of that possibility, I want us to go back 
to, to read about the story and look at the story and see the details of the story and what God was doing in the Red Sea parting and um, how that applies to us by learning to live by faith. So Exodus chapter 14 is where we need to go. Exodus chapter 14. And what I want to do this morning is read the entire chapter and actually a little bit before Exodus 14 just to keep the story line flowing the way Moses wrote it because he didn't have chapters when he wrote the story. So where I want to pick up is in verse 17. And we'll read down through the end of chapter 14. And I'll say this now because I'll forget to say it later. I would strongly encourage you to also read chapter 15. I really wanted to read that this morning, and it's just a time issue. But chapter 15 is a, is a wonderful song. It was a song sung by the people um, after they walked through the Red Sea. And uh, I would encourage you later on to read that and see their view of God because of what he did. We'll pick up in verse 17 of Exodus 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not, listen to this, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And I I don't have time to preach on that this morning, but what I would just encourage you to think about, reflect on that, is how well God knew his people and that this was actually an act of love on God's part for his people. He knew what they were ready for. He knew what they were not ready for. And knowing that, he took them in a different way. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihiroth, I guess, and Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land and wilderness has shut them in. And I, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this that we have done? 
that we have let Israel go from serving us. They had a V8 moment there. I wish I'd have had a V8. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped by the sea, by that nice town in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? I find it humorous that in verse eight, they were going out defiantly and now all of a sudden they're whining. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. You only have to shut up. That's the uh, Yankee translation. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and the horsemen. <clears throat> then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel and there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. 
The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and of all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. For 430 years, the descendants of Abraham have waited for this day. They have waited for God to fulfill his promises regarding the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for many of those years, the people enjoyed prosperity and security as the relatives of Joseph. Sometimes we get into our head that the, Egypt, that the Israelites were always under persecution in Egypt, but for a good period of time, as long as there were pharaohs that remembered Joseph, they enjoyed prosperity. Their flocks grew large. And as we saw last week, the people multiplied in the land. They went from 70 people to filling the land all the way across the borders. And during this time, as I've thought about this, I would guess that they were not too different from us. We're not told here in the story, but just knowing that they were human beings and knowing our propensity, it's not just me, it's all of us, that when we live in times of prosperity and we live in times of security, the promises of God often become less important to us. Is that fair to say? We have a tendency to kind of back burner those things and we, we just enjoy what we have, generally speaking, as human beings. I think I would guess with them that as they lived a very comfortable, prosperous life, the promised land that they only knew of through the promises that had been recalled to them by Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Joseph, but the promised land kind of became possibly a, a fuzzy, dreamy future, but not something that shaped their daily lives and thinking. I, I have experienced that as a believer, that I know about the kingdom and I look forward to the kingdom and I value talks about the kingdom, but in the midst of day-to-day -day life, a lot of other things press in on me and begin to drive my thinking and my decisions and I don't live with my affections set on the things that are above. I'm living in a driven state by the circumstances of my life. But then things began to change for these people. Slowly and subtly, there was an increasing sense <clears throat> that they were no longer as popular or appreciated in the culture. And yes, I am intentionally drawing parallels. As the memories of Joseph began to fade, so their standing in the culture began to change. Probably 
they began to feel threatened and their sense of loyalty to king and country was threatened. And we know that there were questions about their loyalty because the new Pharaoh said, they're gonna start a revolution. They're gonna overthrow us. They're gonna make us their servants. So there were questions about their loyalty. Maybe some sought to assert their influence and demand their rights as valued contributors to the economy and culture. Probably, just like us today, many reflected on better days when Joseph was revered. And then one day, though it felt like it had been coming for a very long time, everything began to change. Ripped from their pastoral lives, these once important peace-loving people became slaves and they were forced to perform back-breaking labor. Rumors of genocide began to circulate in their community, coming to fruition as their baby boys were stolen and thrown into the River Nile. I wonder at times if discussions of insurrection and revolution began to be whispered in concealed meeting places. But in the midst of all of this, word began to spread of a man whom God was sending as a liberator. And this man that they were hearing about had once enjoyed high connections in Pharaoh's family. We know who that person was. It was Moses, the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh. Suddenly strange happenings in nature began to occur and weird diseases were affecting the Egyptians and some said it was judgment from God. And it was now confirmed as fact that a man named Moses was confronting Pharaoh and demanding the release of Abraham's offspring. Moses was going to Pharaoh and saying, God says, let my people go. It's significant, I think, as Moses writes the story in verse 17 of chapter 13, when Pharaoh had let the people go. And I wonder if at this point, under oppression as a people, if the land promises were beginning we're becoming more important and almost a tangible reality. And suddenly this Moses man spoke to the people, commanding them to prepare for liberation. The day was coming. A strange new sacrifice was introduced to these people. Moses told them about slaughtering lambs, and gave them a directive to splash blood on doorposts. You know, we read these stories and we're like, oh yeah, that's what, what they did. They did sacrifice. Yeah, that would be. This was all new to these people. This, this Passover thing was, was new. And they were, I want you to get a sense of the unsettledness that was in their lives. And this Moses guy that they really don't know very well is coming and saying, slaughter lambs and sp spray blood. Moses told them that God himself was bringing great death upon Egypt 
that he was going to kill all the firstborn and only those who believed his promise of blood redemption would be spared. And it was an awful night. There were the screams of mothers that began to ring out and helpless fathers clutching the still bodies of their children, knowing that they were powerless to protect or revive. Remember that the Jews lived in the midst of Egypt and all night long they would have heard those screams going on. They would have heard the wails and the sorrow as people lost their children. Fear began to grip the Egyptian community and Pharaoh calls Moses in and demands that the Hebrew people leave and ready to flee because Moses told them to be ready. With the power structures upended, God's people obeyed Moses' instructions from God and asked the Egyptians for gifts. They were to go to their Egyptian taskmasters and ask for valuables. <laughs> Can you imagine that? These people have been beating and killing them, killing their kids, oppressing them in unbelievable ways. Now these people are in the midst of sorrow as their children are dying. And sometime during the night, um, hi, I'm your friend from down the street. And um, yeah, I am, I am Jewish and uh, I am a descendant of Abraham and, and uh, we're getting ready to leave. Yeah, we're going, we're moving away. Um, and we were wondering if you had any gold or silver or jewelry or anything like that you'd like to send along with us. And the Egyptians just start to load them with wealth. So now these slaves are flush with incredible wealth and food and they are carrying the bones of Joseph, we're told, as Abraham's people begin their journey to the land of promise. Imagine what that would have felt like. What an amazing, incredible thing their God had done for them. These people had witnessed an awesome display of his power and faithfulness to them. And certainly they had to be filled with feelings of hope and optimism and celebration <clears throat> and salvation. And they could see that their God was with them. There was a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. He was leading them to their good and abundant and promised future. All is well. And I'm sure that as they began their journey, it was a time of great praising of God and rejoicing in his care for them. But as we know, it's not gonna stay that way for very long. There's something important I want you to notice at the beginning of chapter 14. And my guess is probably that you didn't even notice the little but very important details Moses records for us. All those little towns, the only significance they are to us is we don't know how to pronounce them and they're weird. We don't know where they were. We don't know anything about them. So we just skip over those and we get to the good stuff, the walls of the water. That's what we want to focus on. But I want you to focus in on these words that aren't so important to us. First, in verse one, we're told that God spoke to Moses regarding travel directions. 
they're, they're trucking out there. They're moving along, happy as clams. And God speaks to Moses and says, I want you to turn. And I want you to set up camp by the sea. In the ESV, it's before the sea, but the word means facing the sea. Now, this is not in the text, and I understand this, but I'm just kind of putting myself in this situation. And I wondered if someone, in the midst of all their euphoria about what God was doing and how wonderful he was, and this Moses guy, we really don't know him, but he's a man, his poll numbers are like off the charts. Things are going great. And, and when they find out where they're headed, maybe, maybe someone pointed out how great it was that God, as he led them to the promised land, was allowing them to enjoy some beach time on the way. This, he's such a good God. He's taking us to the promised land, but he's not taking us that way. He's, he's getting us down here to the resort by the Red Sea, and we're gonna, we're gonna have beach time on this trip. This is awesome. This is great. What a good God we have. how compassionate and kind he was to think of them of us in this way. But the reality is that if this was dramatized, this is when that sense of foreboding begins to set in because the music changes. And that, that minor key comes in with the da-dum, 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 da-dum. Something's coming. And the next detail in the story reveals the reason for those unsettling tunes that are being played by the orchestra. Moses is told the reason for the change in course. God wasn't bringing bringing them to this point so they could enjoy beachfront days and have a wonderful time on their way to the land of Canaan. God tells Moses that he, God, is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And because of this hardening, Pharaoh will decide to pursue God's people and bring them back as slaves. In fact, we learn that this whole beachfront experience is actually a trap. It isn't anything like they thought it was going to be. It was a trap. But Moses also learns that through this trap, God will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and the Egyptians shall know I am the Lord. It's a trap, but who's the trap for is the big question right now. And sure enough, while God's people are working on their tans and splashing in the sea, Pharaoh is putting together his best army. Hundreds of warriors led by Pharaoh are racing in their chariots towards the Hebrews. And suddenly the Egyptian soldiers see the Israelites and they see, and the Israelites see the approaching army. And we're told in verse 10 that great fear swept through the hearts of God's people. And I can imagine the mothers racing to gather their children in their arms and the fathers swarming towards Moses's newly opened complaint department. Why? Why did you bring us here? Who in the world do you think you are? We were fine in Egypt. 
We were ready to be buried in Egypt. We were happy in Egypt. It was great. Why did you bring us out here where we're going to be trapped? You brought us to the stinking Red Sea where we have no escape and Pharaoh's army is right behind us and we're all going to be slaughtered here. What are you thinking? How quickly people's opinions can change and the polls drop. Now it's Moses' fault. Like Moses dreamed up the whole thing and he forced them to come along. Never mind that there is still a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire right there with them. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And these people have God visibly present with them. And they don't believe that the promise is going to be fulfilled. They have Joseph's Joseph's bones with them. And they don't believe that the promise is going to be fulfilled. How fickle we are. How quickly we can change. Going out defiantly because times are good. And then great fear because things aren't going quite the way we thought they should. Forgotten is the witness of the power of God on their behalf. Lost in the moment is the promise of the land. They are now scared and hopeless. They have no control and they're trying to figure out how to save themselves. Anybody else can relate to that? Scared, hopeless, out of control, and how do I save myself now? Humanity has not changed. But Moses, what's Moses' response? Fear not. And I don't think he said it that at that level of volume. Fear not! Stand firm! See the salvation of the Lord that He will work for you. Only you need to stand firm and shut up. I wish I could deal with criticism that way. Shut up. Be silent. Some translations have it as be still. But what Moses is saying is just wait and trust God. The Lord will fight for you. And the rest is history. Moses takes out his staff. He puts it over the sea. The wind begins to blow. The waters begin to separate. The ground dries up. And Moses says, there. There's the salvation. Go. Go. And I I wonder... I wonder what that was like in that moment. You know, again, this is not in the Bible. But did the first couple people just kind of start sticking their toes in there? Did they, did they stand there and look around? What was happening? Or maybe, because we know that these people were not all people of faith. Because a lot of them, almost all of them are going to die in the wilderness. 
A good number of them were involved in building an idol later on. Only two families make it to the promised land from this group. So as some people have suggested, I wonder if the, the ones of faith were towards the front or if they were further back and just said, get out of my way, I'm going. And, and they believed God and went. And others began to see that and said, I'm going too. Let's go, let's go, let's go. But eventually they all go. God's people walk to safety and later the unbelieving Egyptians no faith in who God is or they would not have gone down in to that water into that sea but they make a very bad decision and they drowned and Moses ends the story with these words Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I've come to think of this story in my own life as what I call Red Sea moments where God in his will and his sovereignty and his love and his care says turn turn here maybe not an audible voice but a sense in your spirit that it's time to change it's time to make a move it's time to do something different and we make those decisions and the novelty and the wonder of the newness is just like, this is so great. And I'm doing what God wants me to do. And we suddenly find ourselves facing a Red Sea and life is falling apart. And it reminds me of another person and a night in a garden. The Son of Man, the Son of Man is wrestling with where God's plans have led him. He's in a Red Sea moment. You know, the garden, as with many large gardens, is normally a beautiful, tranquil place, but on that night, It's a place for Jesus of threat and grief and loneliness. His friends don't care enough to stay awake with him. He's in agony of soul, knowing the events events which are about to unfold are not going to be pleasant. We find him talking with his father. His soul is in torment. He's threatened, but he's not afraid. Jesus was not praying to his father out of fear. He's grieving, but he hasn't given up. 
His friends are not faithful, but he is not without comfort. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane that night on the Mount of Olives because he has been led there according to the plans of his good and faithful Father. And it would seem to our eyes that he is trapped and looking for a way out. But as our Savior lies face down in the dirt, sweating as it were great drops of blood from the battle going on in him, his heart believes and his will is submitted. And there we hear the words, not my will, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. How would it have been different if at the Red Sea the the people of Israel in that situation had remembered what their God had already done and remembered what their God had promised and stood there together and began to worship God together and say, not our will, Yahweh, yours be done. It's in that comparison to Jesus that I think we begin to see how unchristlike we are at times. And I wonder how often you feel like those ancient people lounging on the beach. You believed his promises of salvation and a hopeful future. You pursued to the best of your ability his will for your life. Though painful, you might have even left behind things or relationships of value. But now that beach has become a fearful place and a place where things seem beyond your control. Maybe that beachfront seems more like Normandy Beach than Malibu. Maybe you feel God has led you into a trap and has abandoned you. I want to assure you this morning that your God is good. I want you to remember that he loves you with an everlasting, strong, unassailable, steadfast love. I want you to hear and believe that his plans are perfect and he will bring you out to his intended abundant end. I want to recall to your mind that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he rules sovereign in complete control over every little detail of every circumstance of your life. Every moment of every day, of every decade of your life, he is accomplishing his will in and through you. There is never even a nanosecond of time in which his will is thwarted or changed. And the clouds may have gathered and the armies of the serpent 
may seem to be prevailing. And the circumstances may feel bleak, hopeless, and lonely. But never forget, never stop believing that your God is for you, with you, and keeping you. Always. So I encourage you not to give in to the voices in your head or even around you. That would push you to fear and tell you that there is no hope. That would tell you, you must save yourself. The words of Moses to those people are the same words to us today. The Lord will fight for you. Just wait. And keep your eyes focused on what He has promised. I would say to you not to look back and long for the life you have left behind. No matter how pleasant that life was, first of all, nothing stays the same. Second, that life was left behind in a land of death and slavery and darkness. To go back is to walk away from God. Instead, this morning, I want you to hear God proclaim that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has gotten glory over his enemies. The serpent has been dealt a mortal blow. Hear God proclaim this morning that in and through your circumstances and you, God is proclaiming that all the nations will know that he is the Lord. Do not fall trap of a victim mentality that points a finger at God and says, I trusted you and look what you did to me. Understand that behind the scenes, God is leading you on a path to protect you from, for what he has not prepared you for and to bring you to places where only he can rescue you, to bring you to places to expose how much you're not like Jesus so that you can learn how much you need to change, to bring you to places where, he can, where only he can save you. He wants to strip away your control or your sense of it. He wants to bring you to places where you have only one option, and that is to be dependent upon Him. He wants you to wait for Him. He wants you to trust in Him, no matter how ugly it seems.
For some reason, God has put a whole lot of Red Sea moments in my life over the years. For, for a good part of my life, things went pretty smoothly. Little blips here and there. And then came a day where I said, God, I am willing to do whatever you want me to do, even this thing, pursuing ministry. I did not want it. And everything went swimmingly until the day we left Denver to pursue ministry. And everything began to unravel five hours outside of Denver. But I can look back in life and see how every one of those Red Sea moments, although very painful and very frightening and extremely difficult, I can look back at each one of them and see how God brought me to that point, brought me through that point, and totally changed the direction of my life, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in bigger ways. And, and life did not go the course I thought it would anywhere I've ever been. But I would say for those of you who are glad I'm at Northbrook, I wouldn't be here except for those Red Sea moments. It wouldn't have happened. It couldn't have happened if not for those moments. So I would encourage you this morning to believe his promises, to stand in awe of him and go forward believing and trusting in his plan. And as you walk, remind yourself that he goes with you. He never leaves or forsakes you. I'm gonna read you the words of a poem that were made into a song that some of you are familiar with. Whatever my God ordains is right. He will never deceive me. He leads me by the proper path and I know that he will not leave me. I take content in what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away and patiently I wait his day. Let's pray. Father, help us to see you in all of your greatness and glory. May you bring us to places where we are dependent upon you. Bring us to places where you strip away our sense of control. Bring us to places that expose how we are not like Jesus. And Father, as you stand there with us, remind us that you are for us, that you have never left us, that you will never abandon us, that you love us more than we could ever understand. And by your grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in us, help us to go forward with you even when it seems impossible. 
in your son's name. Amen.